looking this morning at the subject of how uh, worship can come, must come, through the ordinances. And you'll look at your bulletin outline, you'll see the first is a question. What is an ordinance? We use this phraseology all the time. What's an ordinance? Well, <clears throat> let me give you some scriptures from the Old Testament, and I think you'll be able to pick up on the flavor of what an ordinance is. God told Israel in the tent of meeting, outside the curtain that is in front of the testimony. By the way, testimony is just another uh, Old Testament uh, phraseology for the Ark of the Covenant. So in front of the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. Exodus 27, verse 21. So here's a regulation prescribing worship of God that has to do with illuminating lamps, and they're to be kept burning. That's not electricity, you know. That's putting oil in the thing <clears throat> so that the wicks still have fuel to burn continually. Or again, listen to this, Exodus 29.9. Put headbands on them, the priests, then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. In this way you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Exodus 29, verse 9. So there's a certain thing that they were to go through in the ordination process. Again, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded. Leviticus 16, verse 34. So you all know about this. The Day of Atonement, the special offering, that was a lasting ordinance made once a year. Once a year that was done. Feast of Booths. Don't normally think about the Feast of Booths. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in Booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in Booths so that your descendants will know that I made the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Leviticus 23, verse 41 and following. I don't know what the booths looked like, but they were certainly something that was more in the area of temporary housing rather than permanent housing. Now, it's clear thus far that an ordinance is somewhat different from, let's say, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were, they are, a list of regulations that speak to the need of all men as creatures of God living under the standard of morality laid down by the Creator. They are not based on race, they're not based on sex, they're not based on nationality or on geographical location, your domicile, or on one's history. No, the moral law is for all people on the planet for all times. Granted, the bulk of the world doesn't obey them or try to follow them, but that doesn't change the fact that that's what God gave. 
But an ordinance has specific reference to God's people in relation to their personal, get it now, their personal history as it relates to God. Let's go back. The ordinance for Aaron and his sons to keep the lamps burning in the tabernacle before the Ark of the Covenant. And that is labeled a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for generations to come. Exodus 27, verse 21. So I ask this question. What significance would such a rule have for the pagan nations of the world, even of that day, who had no tabernacle and, for that matter, did not worship God? So you see, an ordinance is directed to personal history. Oh, what about the yearly celebration of living in booze for seven days? Again, the scripture says, all native-born Israelites are to live in booze. Leviticus 23:42. That was to commemorate what? The time when God rescued the people from Egyptian servitude, and they had to live in booze. So it had meaning to Israel, but it didn't have meaning to anyone else. So you see, you're getting a flavor for what an ordinance is. Now, that's kind of the Old Testament pattern. Does this hold true when we come to the New Testament to consider the ordinances that Christ has laid down for his church? Well, the first thing I would say, by way of observation, is that the word ordinance or statute is not found in the New Testament record, which is not the same as saying that prescribed practices are not found. And that is what an ordinance is. It is a prescribed practice laid down as obligatory by a given authority. So you have an authority and they establish an ordinance. And of course we're talking in the Christian faith, we're talking about Christ as our authority. In the Old Testament we're talking about Jehovah. Uh, for example, you're all familiar, I'm sure, with various city ordinances. <laughs> some of them you like, some of them you don't like. Um, most little cities, big cities too, have what they call a blight ordinance. A blight ordinance means that a city will not permit junk cars sitting in your lawn or garbage piled up on the sidewalk or lawns with weeds that are two feet high. Say, oh no, we have a blight ordinance. You can't live that way. Oh yes, you can ignore such city ordinances, but then you will be fined by the city or the city will... <coughs> clean up the blight for you and send you the bill. <coughs> they have the blight patrol <laughs> that goes around, sees a pile of brush in your front yard or weeds so high or whatever. And they can tell by the condition that you have not been maintaining your lawn. So you'll get a citation. Well, in the spiritual realm, an ordinance receives its authority directly from Christ. Just as in the Old Testament, ordinances receive their authority from Jehovah, speaking to or through the prophets. 
And these also are binding upon the followers of Christ and they carry an obligatory weight that cannot be dismissed without consequence. So, second point in your outline. What are the ordinances of the new covenant? They are two, baptism and the Lord's table. What about baptism? Well, this ordinance was issued within the Great Commission. Let me read it for you, Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, verse 19. So, here is a command of something Christ wants done by his disciples. It was practiced by John the baptizer. We read, John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now note, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Mark 1, verse 4 and 5. And John understood that there had to be sincerity, there had to be a genuine remorse for sin, because, we read, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the coming wrath? Matthew 3, verse 7. He addressed them as snakes, going through the motions of repentance. You see, while underneath their heart, they were plotting against God's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that John was the forerunner of Jesus, whose task, among other things, was to testify of Christ and his work. And so, when speaking of baptism, it's not surprising to hear John explain. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Luke 3, verse 16. So, if we combine, if we combine the two thoughts, baptism as a rite or ordinance, pointing to the day of our repentance, the day of our forgiveness of sins, and to the time when our lives were transformed by the Holy Spirit and His purging fire. We have this connection, do we not, to our past. As Israel's ordinances were a reminder of the grace of God in their past. Assuming, of course, that we are believers and have followed the Lord in obedience and baptism. And here we are today to celebrate the Lord's table. And that's the next point. The Lord's table, the second ordinance. For I receive from the Lord, Paul writes, what I also pass on to you, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until, until he comes. That's our text, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 26. I want you to observe that partaking of both the bread and the cup are commands. They are commands issued first and foremost by Jesus himself, and now reiterated by Paul to the church at Corinth, whose conduct was less than stellar on this account. Look at verse 20. He says to them, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now they might ask, Well, Paul, why do you say that? We are gathered here to break bread together. We're gathered here to drink the cup. Of course! We are celebrating the Lord's Supper. Well, Paul's denial of such is because of verse 21. As you eat, writes Paul, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I pray? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Verse 21, verse 22. What was going on? Well, the church at Corinth, the church of Corinth was following the pattern, listen to me now carefully, the pattern set by Christ the night this ordinance was initiated. The pattern was a love feast, in this case the Passover celebration, followed by Jesus taking the bread, taking the cup, and reading new meaning into them. The bread being representative of his broken body, the cup being representative of his shed blood, both of which were just hours away. So this was the pattern the Corinthian church followed. Dinner first, then celebration of the Lord's table at the close of the meal. That's the pattern. Good for them. They had the pattern down right. But not so good. They did not have the practice down right. See the difference? At the meal, gluttony set in. As some ate their fill while others remained hungry, verse 23. Others got drunk on what was now to be the communion wine. And so Paul was saying, you may think you're celebrating the Lord's Supper because you break bread and you drink the cup together, but with such willful sin as greediness and drunkenness, God does not approve your worship. Not enough to have the pattern right. You've got to have the practice right. It's always the case, brethren, that true worship involves more, much more, than having the right elements in place, in this case, bread and wine, and following the pattern observed by the Lord and his disciples. These activities, in and of themselves, say very little about worshiping Christ 
if the whole ceremony is permeated with sin. It's kind of like an abusive husband saying, well, you know, I just slapped you with my hands. I didn't use a baseball bat. As though he should get kudos, you know, for not using the bat. God never looks simply at the externals. Never does. He is always reading heart motives and the actions going on. We learn this principle when Samuel began screening Jesse's many sons to anoint one of them as the new king to replace Saul. We read this. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Wow, look at Eliab. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel, you're not looking at his heart. I am. You're looking at his height. Oh, yeah, he's a big, strapping, strong guy. He'd make a great king. No, he wouldn't. I've rejected him. And we go through all the seven sons, and it's not till the youngest comes before Samuel, David, but a boy, a shepherd boy, that the Lord approves. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6 and 7. Now, this idea of God looking on the heart rather than on the externals is no less true even when those ordinances and laws that God himself has prescribed for his people to worship him. You would think that when the Lord prescribes something and the people do that, okay, it's, it's, they're going to be blessed for that. That's why in Isaiah chapter 1, Listen to this. God is speaking to Israel, but listen to how he addresses them. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Oh, that's... Oh. He's saying to Israel's rulers that you're ruling over Sodom? He goes on. This is what the Lord says, you two rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities that God judged with brimstone and fire. And it's like God is saying, you know, the wrath of God is perched over Israel. Now they think they're doing real good. He goes on. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me, New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. 
your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Isaiah 1, verse 10 through 14. Now we listen to this and we ask, now, now, now wait a minute. How can God define the sacrifices as meaningless offerings? How can he say of the Sabbaths and the convocations that they are evil assemblies when it was God who commanded Israel to worship him with animal sacrifices and to do so on the Sabbath and on special days of convocation? There's something not right here. Well, brethren, it is again this business of the heart. What was Israel's problem in Isaiah chapter 1? Let me read it for you. Wash and make yourselves clean. And he's not talking about taking a bath. He's talking about the inner heart. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet. See, that's where they're at. Sodom and Gomorrah. Your sins are like scarlet. They shall be white as snow, though they are red as crimson. They shall be as wool. Isaiah 1, verse 16 through 18. You need to ask yourself this. What good are sacrifices for sin if, while I offer the appropriate God-ordained animal sacrifice, I'm sinning against my neighbors, especially the widows and the orphans who are so vulnerable to exploitation? You know, it's Samuel standing at Jesse's house looking for a replacement for Saul all over again. And he's looking at the outward appearance, but God's looking at the heart. And Israel is bringing its offerings, and they're having their Sabbath day celebrations and their convocations. And it is though Israel was saying, don't look at that, Lord. Just look at the offerings that I bring. I don't, don't look at my heart. Just look at the offerings I bring. Just... Just look at the fact that on the Sabbath, I am found in the assembly of worship. What an insult to the integrity of God that we would accept externals that look the part while the internals belie anything genuine. And what an insult as well to truly God, godly character that they, may I say we, would settle for going through the motions and calling it good when our hearts are full of sin. It's scary to think of all the professing Christians in America who count externals as proof of genuine faith. What a surprise is coming. When Jesus the judge 
will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are accursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 41. Why? Because not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Now then, both practices of the New Testament, baptism by immersion, partaking of the bread and cup of the Lord's table, are given by Christ as ongoing ordinances whose perpetuity is determined by God himself. He's already told us about the Lord's table that... uh, we're to remember this until he comes. So that gives us kind of a timeline, but we don't know when he's coming. So it goes on. Now, secondly, what do the ordinances bring to our worship? We're talking about worshiping the Lord through the ordinances. Well, number one, you'll notice in your outline, number one, it brings remembrance. Verse 24, do this in remembrance of me, or of the cup. Verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The same, you remember, held true when we thought of the ordinances that Israel was given by God. The booze, which were to be constructed and lived in for seven days a year, was so that they could recall God's deliverance from Egyptian slavery and the quick but adequate housing God provided as necessary for their survival. It's a lasting ordinance in terms of that. I think God was simply saying, I don't want you to forget about how I brought you out of Egypt. You didn't do that, I did that. You didn't deal with Pharaoh, I dealt with Pharaoh. You didn't part the Red Sea, I parted the Red Sea. You didn't provide food. I gave you manna from heaven. You didn't provide water. I supplied water from the rock. Why, even your clothes did not wear out in all those years of wandering in the wilderness. I did that. You need to remember that. What about the early offering of the Day of Atonement? The writer of Hebrews explains. He says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming They're not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, they can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Oh. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. They would no longer have felt guilty for their sin. Okay, okay, all right, all right. Then why the annual Day of Atonement offering and so forth? He goes on. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Ooh. Because it is impossible, get it now, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10, the first four verses. Now here the reminder is, it's a negative. Okay, it is a negative. But it's an important negative. Namely, the animal sacrifices are only a shadow of the good things to come. So don't put your hope in that. Why do we have them? 
there to remind you that there must be atonement made. Life for life. They are deficient sacrifices. They can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. We read. But, but, he goes on, the great reality is, let me read it for you. This is still Hebrews 10. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And then I said, Christ is speaking here to the Father, Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And by that will, the writer writes, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10, verse 5 through 10. Ah, animal sacrifice is deficient. There are a reminder of sins. That's a negative reminder, but it's a necessary one. But they point to when Christ came into the world. In other words, there is a sacrifice that actually obtains cleansing and forgiveness and reconciliation with God from sin. And it's so perfect. It is so stupendously unique that it was and it is offered only one time. Do you know how novel that is for these Hebrew people to hear that? Wait, wait, did we hear you right? One offering for all time? I mean, not, not next year we got to do this again or the year after that, or many multiple One offering for now and forever? It is so effective that once is all it takes to set sinners in right state before God. The sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus, who is God's Lamb, that takes away the sin of the world when men repent and believe. Now, both ordinances recall, recall the cross work of Jesus. What about baptism? Well, listen to this. Paul gives us the spiritual significance for all believers. What about baptism? Here's what he says. Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him, going down into the water, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father coming up out of the water, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Romans 6, verses 3 through 8. The ordinance of baptism by immersion now symbolizes the salvation experience in time-space history. Crucified with Christ, death, 
buried with Christ, that's the grave, resurrected with Christ, coming out of the drowning pool of sin as a new person, breathing the air of a resuscitated soul that will live forever. Now, not the water itself doing that. This is symbolic of what Christ has done for us. So we disagree with those churches, Roman Catholics, Church of God, others that believe you're saved when you go into water baptism. No. If you're not saved before you go into water baptism, you won't be saved when you come out of it. Say, I thought you guys were Baptists. Yeah, we are. I thought you took your name, Baptist, from the ordinance, baptism, or John the baptizer. Yeah, we do. Do you remember the text we read in Mark? People coming out to John to be baptized, repenting of their sin and confessing their sin. They were baptized by John. They were saved before they went in the water. If the old you is dead, if the old you is buried, and the new you is alive in spirit and soul, then Paul's evaluation becomes your experience as well. Here it is. I, says Paul, have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2, verse 20. Now, if that is not your experience, then you're not saved. Simple. God does not save people and then not change them by emancipating them from the chains of ongoing sin. Oh, you Christians think you're sinless. No, I didn't say that, and that's not what the Scripture teaches. I said we're not chained to ongoing sin. Well, what does that mean? It means we now, for the first time in our lives, by reason of the Holy Spirit's cleansing, we have the opportunity to live for God, to please Him. We have the opportunity not to sin. The unbeliever has nothing, no capability except to sin. Do we sin? We do. Yes. But we're emancipated from the chain of it. So living becomes new. Living becomes an ongoing effort to please God in thought and word and deed. And baptism reminds us of this. Now the Lord's table does the same by concentrating on the actual sacrifice Necessary for God to create us anew. There must be a stand-in sacrifice for your sin. The law of God states, For every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one that will die. Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Is there any doubt as to who is a soul who sins? When the Bible says, categorically, all have sin, all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 23. Well, if that were the end of the story, it wouldn't be a story worth reading. It would be a nightmare, and you wouldn't want to read it. 
The Apostle John words it this way, This is love, not, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4, verse 10. And in our text, look at verse 24. The Lord Jesus broke the bread at the table and He said, This is my body, which is for you. And thereafter he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see, this is the sacrifice that's superior to the animals of the old covenant that we read about in Hebrews. God does not want us to forget the stand-in work of his Son. Being tortured for our sin, spit upon for our sin, mocked and ridiculed for our sin, plated with a crown of thorns for our sin, finally executed on a cross in our place for our sin, so that, like the repentant thief, we might live in paradise with God. Don't you forget that, is what God is saying. God took the initiative to befriend us in Christ who proclaimed greater love has no one than this that that one lay down his life for his friend and you are my friends if you do what I command. John 15 verse 13 and 14. God took that initiative. There's a scaled down um, replica of the memorial wall dedicated to those that lost their lives in the Vietnam War. The actual wall is in Washington, but there's a scaled-down version. 60, almost 60,000 of our citizens, our soldiers, lost their lives in the Vietnam War. The scaled-down version is a portable enough. It, it can be transported by truck, and it is to various locales. They set it up for the people to see. And people by the thousands come wherever it is erected, and they come looking for the names of their loved ones who gave their lives in that way. What's its purpose? Its purpose is that it is a reminder to our nation that freedom is not free. That all the soldiers defending our country do not come home alive. They're saying we should remember. We should not forget. And we do not want to forget so great a sacrifice. Well, let me tell you, God does not want us to forget that a war rages. A war rages for the souls of men. We have an enemy, spiritually, Satan, who with himself would damn us all to hell's fires along with him. God wants us to remember that all will not come through the battle alive. But he has determined that all who have trusted Jesus, who went to hell and back for the victory in his resurrection, we are guaranteed life everlasting to all who believe. The ordinances call us, be it baptism or the Lord's table, they call us to remember. Another thing the ordinances bring to us is thanksgiving and proclamation. Verse 26, For whenever 
you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. Baptism, same thing. During the days of the Inquisition, when there was a break from the Roman church, the Protestant church was established. The Baptists stayed true to the scriptures with regard to baptism. When they were persecuted, they were rowed out into the middle of the Danube River in rowboats, their hands tied behind their back, and they were pitched overboard to drown. Yeah, you guys like immersion? We'll show you what immersion's about. But the world watched. And they said, who in their right mind would go to their death for a religion like that? And it heightened the testimony, the proclamation, the Christ is real. His death is worth dying for oneself. Let's remember also that baptism in the New Testament, as well as the Lord's table, were very public. These were, they are, church ordinances. They were not done in secret. There is no place in thinking that these are for private displays. In my stupid days as a young man, I had a Christian friend, and we used to uh, we used to meet in my bedroom, and we would take bread and grape juice, and we would have the Lord's table. We were stupid. That's. The body of Christ wasn't there. We were there doing our own thing. They're church ordinances. God's people need to be gathered. We partake as a church. We rejoice as a church. We proclaim the gospel in our ordinances as a church. And we're careful to warn people. Verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body and blood of the Lord, ESV says, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And in context, what's the judgment? Some of you are weak and sick and dead. Verse 30, that's pretty severe judgment. Paul says you're being, when you're judged that way, you're being disciplined by the Lord so that you will not be condemned with the world. If you're weak, if you're sick, and even if he takes you out, takes you out so you don't continue to sin. The world, the world needs to hear a clear proclamation of Christ and his sacrificial work in the observance of the ordinances. We don't say more about the ordinances than the scripture says. We do not say, when you go down into the waters of baptism, that's your salvation experience. No, we're saying that that commemorates, it remembers, 
It reminds, it says to the world, I have been changed in my heart. I've been crucified and buried with Christ. They need to sense our thankfulness for saving grace. I think we do that pretty good. And we're going to do that in the next service in just a few minutes. And what, the reason we take testimonies in the Thanksgiving service is it gives you opportunity to express thanks for Christ in your life. And some of the thanks, it's not all the happy times. Some of the thanks is that he got you through some hard times. Baptism is saying to the world, I died and I am a new person in Jesus Christ. I am alive from the grave. I am freed from sin's stranglehold. And the Lord's table is saying to the world, here is why I am a changed person. Jesus took my sin upon himself. Jesus paid my debt by his broken body and his shed blood. And he let me reap the benefits because I put my trust in him. I did not always love him. In fact, I was his enemy, as with Paul, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God. I'm still reading scripture. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Romans 5, verse 8 through 11. Every baptism that I've done in, in my 50 plus years of ministry has, has been a joyous occasion. Not only for me, but I'm, I'm thinking of the recipient. I'm thinking of the family that's invited to watch. The church family that is present and observing. It's happy, happy occasion. Because a child of God is saying, I want to tell the world that I have died with Christ, been buried with him, and that I'm a new creature in Christ. The celebration of the Lord's table ought to be a happy occasion too, though sometimes we have some somber things to say in here, but even in that there's joy and sorrow that Christ shores us up and strengthens us. And in difficult days of persecution, comes upon Christians, and we're seeing that escalate in our country and throughout the world. God's people gather together. They partake of the elements, and they remember, yeah, but Christ died. I belong to his family. Let the world do what it will to me. I still am safe in Christ. Hope that's true of you this morning. If not, it can be through repentance and faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your tremendous work. Death, burial, and resurrection. Broken body, shed blood. 
the two ordinances that you give us to remember, remember. You don't want us to forget. We are prone to forget. We are also prone to be maybe a bit slipshod in our observance or our willingness to be observing these ordinances. I believe there are genuine Christians that just have not followed through with baptism. It's the one thing they can do in their life. It's complete obedience. The same way with the Lord's table, which is an ongoing baptism one time. If we tell the world that we're a changed person, then the communion service, an ongoing one, to remind us as often as we do it of Christ's death until he comes. What can we say, Lord, except thank you, praise you for the salvation that we have in Christ? Forgive us for our indolence. Forgive us for those times when perhaps we have taken the ordinances a bit for granted. Forgive us for those times when we have not proclaimed in our worship that there is a God in the heavens and there is a Savior of men. And he's a bloody Savior. He had to die. And we need to remind ourselves as well as the world Sin must be paid for if life eternal is to become our inheritance. Bless these truths to our heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. 204 in the brown hymnal.